0: I think I believed them. Could you feel it? You could feel that they were singing something that they had committed to? That's quite an invitation, choir and band. Thank you. Hey, everybody. My name is Pastor John Jay, and I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Pasadena. If you've got a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you have a phone, I would ask you to scroll your way to Acts chapter 2. Uh, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you if you have neither of those. And uh, you can flip, it's toward the back end of the book, about that far in. We've been in the book of Numbers for quite a long time in 2019, and we closed that out last week. Uh, and today we are starting a new teaching focus on the book of Acts. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which is officially the birthday of the church. And so there's a lot of energy this morning, uh, all kind of funneling into this story and this passage. We're going to read from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1 is a meaningful scripture. It is a synopsis of what has happened in Luke's gospel particularly. Uh, This kind of recapturing the story of Jesus up until this point when Jesus sends the disciples out into the world. But before they are sent out into the world... They were given a gift. And that's what this reading is today. So, join me in this reading. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came the sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, And a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. It began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phargia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean it's the word of the lord thanks be to god would you join me in prayer as we continue god open our minds and hearts our ears Open our very lives to receive your word as it goes forth, your spirit that descends, your spirit that is present and active right in here among us today. We breathe in your presence and breathe out to you all that is burdening us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Because it's the first sermon, I feel soup. I always get really anxious at a first sermon, at a first teaching out of a book, because I have so much to tell you, and they tell me I have to stop talking at some point. So, I'm going to run out of time and words, but that's okay. We're going to be here for quite a while together. A couple things as we get started. Each time we do a new teaching focus here at First Baptist, we often try to find some kind of book that might pair well with the teachings. And so I have, uh, here's the problem. The book that we have right now is a book called Mandate to Witness by Leander Keck. It was uh, published in like the 60s, yeah, 64, and it's not in print anymore. So we bought all the used copies on Amazon, which is only like nine. So the first nine of you that make it to the connections desk, you can grab a copy. And I don't think it's on like an e-reader version. It's a brilliant, beautiful book. We'll have some other books as we go along with this study. But those are in the back. Um, And I want to read actually a passage for you as we get started this morning. Uh, I read this at our 10 o'clock meeting. We gather as a staff at 830 here to pray about the service in the day. Make sure we're on the same page. And then at 10 o'clock, we gather in the lobby space as all of our lay leaders and our teams, our choir and our band. And we pray there as well and make sure we're oriented in the same direction. So I read this passage for them and I want to read it for you as a way to get into this teaching today. Perhaps the most important single thing is an attitude of expectancy. That God will really be present with God's people. Far too few services of worship, for example, are marked by this attitude. They are more like memorial services to the memory of the times when God was present nurturing the sense of expectancy that God will be present as we sing and pray thank you choir is quite obvious preach and give this means cultivating a trust in God's promise a trust which is so simple that it's hard to achieve because it's easier to think about God than to trust God I've been thinking about you all in this entire week because These teachings on the book of Acts, they are not talking about God, they are leaning into God's spirit and actions in the world. And it is such a temptation in church to show up and assume that we are just absorbing new information so we can have the right ideas about the divine. But, we are in the Pentecost season. Post-Easter, we remember the resurrection of Christ and how that reorients the world. But it's resurrection power that gets sort of injected into humanity in pentecost it becomes part of our story we get taken up into it and so we are implicated deeply in what's about to happen in the book of acts it is an incredibly timely book and i'm i'm really excited that we're going to share it together uh so look around you for a second. I've, I know where most of you sit in the congregation. I kind of, as I go through the week and pray for you and the staff prays for you, we know sort of where you might be. Chappie, I see you in the back and I've thought about you a lot this week. Chappie's been in our church for decades and has been witness to God's power over and over in different ways in this congregation. As I thought about him, I went and thought about Rini and Rebecca or the popes who sit on this side and you've been in our congregation for about a year now. And yet somehow we are all taken up into this same story. And... These are the folks who we are orienting our lives toward as we try to seek out God's path for our congregation and for this community. Uh, There is a togetherness here that Pentecost speaks to in a way uh, that demands we pay attention to it. And so I want you to just for a moment pay attention to the gift of one another. You didn't have to be here. And you could have thought big thoughts about God at home or in the park or at Huntington Library today. It's a great, beautiful day to go do those things. But you chose to be here. And you chose to be here in part, whether you realize it or not, because you believe that God is present when God's people gather together. And there are folks who aren't with us today that wish they could be. Mandy is at home right now recovering. Uh, We've got folks who are in long-term care who can't make it to worship or folks who are traveling today. And there is a sense of kind of like ache. In their absence. Because it matters that we gather together. The disciples, they are all in one place, the passage says. They are all waiting expectantly, praying without ceasing. And in that moment, God shows up and gives the gift of God's presence, of God's spirit. When we tell the story of Pentecost, we're not telling a story that happened. We're telling a story that's happening. And in the tellers of this story, we become the story. And so we are about something weighty today, and I want to make sure we hold that in front of us as we move forward. But let's get started. The first thing I want to tell you is what's happening on your bulletin covers and what's happening on this picture, just because sometimes it's a little bit veiled, uh, somewhat intentionally. So let me just explain what's on the page so you can get a sense of where we're headed together today. Uh, the goose on the top. The goose comes from Celtic Christianity and it is a symbol or a sign of the Spirit of God. Now often you might think about like a beautiful dove as the Spirit of God. We have doves in our courtyard outside and they're very lovely, right Cynthia, throughout the week. A geese, like a goose bit me when I was seven years old. That's, geese are really loud and honkish and, uh, obstinate and wild and unpredictable. And for some reason that actually resonates with me more as God's Spirit, I think, than the cooing lovely uh non-offensive dove right you, you pay attention to the spirit of the goose so that's our spirit uh holy spirit Numitas hagio uh spirit of holiness now on the right side is this uh directional arrow that has a sense of kind of order to it and a, a directional pitch and this is the glossa or this language that is given at pentecost which we're going to talk about for a little bit but first i want to talk to you about babel and that's the left side of your picture because this story about Pentecost is keying off of a very ancient story. So we're going to start there this morning in this place of Babel. Now, let's begin. Babel is the concept, the, uh, the metaphor for speech that is degraded, for the chaos that results from us living the way we've decided to live, particularly our primal relatives. So I want you to, if, you, if you'd like to, you can flip backwards to Genesis chapter 11. Now, who knows what happens in Genesis chapter 11? See, you know, you just didn't want to say it out loud in case you were wrong. Yes, the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 11 is the very last chapter in what we would call the primeval history. The primeval history is the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And it is sort of this like really ancient, folklorish way of telling the story of our origins, of the world as we find it. And there's this problem that's present in uh, humanity's telling, which is that there's all of these different cultures and tribes and languages present all across the world. And so every sort of society and nation would have had a way to tell this story about how the world got to be the way it is. And God's people tell this story through this tower that is built. And then the ensuing consequences of that building project. But before that, we've got to back up one more chapter to chapter 10. All right, I'm going to orient you, and then we're going to get going. Chapter 9, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in the book of Genesis is the story of the flood. The flood is the result... Of humanity's descent into chaos, this kind of undoing of creation. And then the waters of creation that were parted in early Genesis swell back in and swallow up the earth. Humanity's violence, tribalism, violent speech, war, murder, all have brought creation to this point of destruction. Now, Noah and Noah's family kind of move humanity through this story. And on the other side, humanity opens back up in this new genealogy. And so Noah's got these three kids. These three kids have their own families, and that becomes the story of how the earth repopulates. There's one whose name is Ham. This is in chapter 10, verse 6. The descendants of Ham are Cush and a whole bunch of other people. And Cush is the father of a character that you may have heard of but probably don't remember a lot about whose name is nimrod do y'all remember nimrod show of hands who who's a fan of nimrod do we have any fans of nimrod and everyone's not sure because they don't remember what nimrod did in the bible (laughs) just a few throwaway lines let me tell you what happens with nimrod he is a gabor Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to become a Gabor, or a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's really very strange to me that he already has his own slogan. It's like really early in humanity's history. But he's already got his own slogan, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth Ear, and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. Nimrod is known as a Gabor or this mighty warrior. Your, your Bible might say something like one of the heroes. The reading might be a little bit confusing because it sounds like Nimrod could just be this like really powerful dude who can get stuff done and he's this builder of cities. But The hunting that Nimrod did was most likely the hunting of people. Nimrod is a conqueror. The reason we know this is because the Bible tells us that Nimrod's nations are basically all of the enemies of Israel. Egypt and Canaan. We know that these are places that Israel will contend with throughout its history. Assyria, where Nineveh is located, and then Babylon, the place of the great exile. These are Nimrod's Places, the the spaces where he inhabits, where his spirit goes forth, they're hooked into all of the ways that Israel will name their enemies over time. And Nimrod himself is a Gabor. There's another person in the Bible who's called a Gabor, a mighty warrior, and that person is Goliath, the ancient enemy of Israel who's slayed by David. Nimrod is not a good dude, but he settles in the plains of Shinar. Now, there are people kind of all over the face of the earth at this point, the Bible would say. But there's this group that gathers in this place known as Shinar. Shinar is to the east. And now we get into the Tower of Babel story. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words and they migrated from the east and they came upon this plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. We're not exactly sure what the word Shinar means because it has all of these different meanings, but the options are terror or rage or to cast down. This is not a good place. Founded by not a good person. So you've got all of these people gathered together, likely pushed together. By violence and conflict. And they gather on this plane of terror. Now the reason that they are in this space is because they have been moving east of God's presence for quite a long time. The story of the Bible starts in Genesis 1 with the Garden of Eden. And there is this story of tripping and falling into our own hubris and pride. And then they move out of the Garden east And then from there, there's the first murder with Cain and Abel, and it says that Cain is pushed even further east. And you feel this drift of humanity away from God's presence, away from the presence of one another, from the land, and they are like far, far removed. You get to the flood, you get this total destruction. It is this downward slide of humanity as the story falls apart in this primeval history. And they find themselves really far east. And so they gather together. Because when you have this kind of world that is this scary, you start to get tribal. You start to link up with people who believe the same things, who say the same things, and you would call it something like a filter bubble today. Now, I am sure that many of us have found the plains of Shinar again. In fact, if you just read the news, you will feel the way that humanity is starting to gather back together in these spaces of narrowed language and narrowed vision and antagonism for any of those who are not on the inside. So here's what they do. They gather together and they yell this phrase. They have a very limited speech pattern, it says. They have the same words. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the goal here. Now, because of this downward slide and this distance between them and the divine, they've got to figure out some way to bridge the distance. And so they hatch a plan to build a city, and not just a city, but a tower. And the tower is supposed to reach to the heavens. Can you feel what it is they're trying to fix? They're both trying to fix their distance from God that creates all kinds of anxiety, But it also says that they are trying to reach into the heavens. In some way, this Nimrod character and this impulse within us, because we are all descendants of this story, is that we might not just take the whole world, but we could even storm the gates of heaven. And so that's what they're after here too. To conquer everything. To make a name for themselves. As death has entered the picture in this story, there is this great concern that you will be forgotten Part of the fear of death, and looking around here, is this fear that we might just disappear and that everything that we have done in this life will just be forgotten and vanish. And in that fear, a lot of folks start building things, reputations, literal buildings, whatever the case may be, so that we can say, like, that's where I was and that's what I did in this world. That's what's happening here. So it says they try to build a tower to the heavens. Um but the tower to the heavens is not quite to the heavens because uh, God says, let's go down and see what they're doing, which is a joke, by the way, in case you're not sure what the cadence and tempo of the Bible is. Uh, the tower is supposed to be up in the heavens, which should kind of knock against God's knees, metaphorically speaking. But it doesn't uh, because God has to look down and put on divine binoculars and see like, oh, they're trying to throw rocks up here and they can't quite make it. Uh, so it says, let's go down and see what they're doing now i don't want to stay on this passage for too long but suffice it to say this language that brings them together this narrowness of speech it becomes their undoing the commandment in the early parts of the torah of the bible are to be fruitful and to multiply and then to fill the earth that's like the the first commandment that humanity is given And what we see in the Plains of Shinar is the exact opposite, is this pulling in and this narrowing down. And so God's purposes are going to move forward. And so the story says that their languages are confused. This narrow speech becomes babble, becomes chaos, becomes a fracturing. One writer says this is the last time that God will speak to humanity as a unity. After this story, God zooms in on one family. Abram and Sarah comes Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. There's a deep loss in this story, and so they're scattered across the face of the earth. Now this feels like a consequence, uh, this scattering, but it's actually a gift, it's a grace, because part of the problem here is they are forcing one another into this kind of conformity this homogeneity where everybody has to be the same they think the same thoughts, they say the same words they look, they act the same they believe all of the exact same things that kind of thing is this leveling and God's not interested in that project and so God invites them into this kind of diversity so that they might rediscover a humility that ennobles as one writer says and this is why, Chappie, you've been on my mind this week. Uh, because I know in the time that Chappie or Linda Palou or others who've been in this church for a while, you have learned to tell the story of First Baptist and of God in a distinct way and tone. And then I have got invited into this congregation like two years ago. And I show up on the scene with, the, with this version of the story that is near and dear to me. And I'm learning how to tell it in conversation with this community. There is a difference at play here. That we each get invited into. And that difference is humbling. Because it turns out I don't know everything. I don't know if you realize I don't know everything. And like even Jeanette who knows a lot. And you've got Bob Karras here. You know a lot. Don't know everything. And we feel as though we need each other. To see the fullness of God in ourselves. The invitation in Babel is the invitation to humility. To realize that we are not everything. But we are a part But of course we don't get that story. All of this difference gets manifested in anxiety and war. I promise you, if you just like open your gospel eyes, the eyes that the Spirit has given you to see the world as it is, you will feel the presence of Babel everywhere. This need to draw firm boundaries so you know who's in and who is out. The need to conform everyone to a certain kind of speech pattern and literal language. So God scatters them. So they can find one another in a new way. Which brings us to Pentecost. Pentecost. They were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came the sound, the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Part of the mandate given for humanity to flourish and fill the earth is so That God's presence will fill the earth so that we will move throughout creation and tell this story. We will bear witness to God's power throughout creation. Not our power, not making a name for ourselves, but bringing this deep truth about God throughout creation. says that God's spirit fills the room. Now, our organ's not working, but Paul, if it was, I would have you play every note and pull out all the stops and fill this space. But even your own breathing here, this filling the space, God's presence is filling the home to overflowing. They become this little microcosm of creation, and it keeps breaking forth. The passage says that as this wind fills the home, that tongues like fire, they descend. And they rest on each of these 12. This is the 12 disciples. Israel reconstituted. And then it says that they begin to speak. And the speech is not the same words. There is this multiplicity. This multivalent kind of speaking. And yet, what is it that they are proclaiming? Not a name for ourselves. But they're all in a different tone and tenor speaking of God. What you see in this passage of Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. the invitation into speech patterns that might put the world back together. Because at Babel, the world is torn apart. And speech becomes the means toward violence. And violent speech becomes the path toward actual violence and then murder and then war and then all the things that accompany that kind of world. Christ in death and resurrection puts to death the power and fear of death conquers it, Paul says. So there's nothing left to be afraid of. And so then our speech is rescued into a new kind of generative pattern. At Babel, they couldn't find the language for God, they could only find the language of the self. Boy, this is exhausting. Right, This kind of speaking pattern is just, it's exhausting. And it is the language of our time. Each of us isolated individuals in our little corner of the world trying our very best to build up our brand, for lack of a better term. Our importance in the world, our indispensableness in the world. Our meanness in the world, and I, I am exhausted of me. Does anyone relate to being exhausted of the mirror, of the need to cultivate the self all the time in the world to prove that you are worth just being here? And this comes from a place of just not understanding that you already belong. We are taught to earn it and to prove it, and that we are in competition with our neighbor for those things because we deeply believe that there's just a little bit to go around so we push everybody together and make them say the same things that we already believe so that we can feel better about that little narrow patch of reality we occupy God's vision is so much bigger Acts, if it's anything it is the invitation and the disruption of what God is doing in the church Which is bringing people together across difference into a new kind of unity. Speaking in different tones, in different ways, with different words. And in that difference, finding a togetherness that is robust. We would call this salvation. It's gonna take everything. I'm gonna ask, uh, Ted Perlman if he'd come up, because I want you to feel this. I've been sitting with this kind of pattern this week of pre-Babel and post-Babel and post-Pentecost. So, uh, he's gonna grab his guitar, and I'm gonna ask him, uh, if he will, to play for us what it sounded like before Babel, which is just one note. You can choose it. If you could find for us a selfish note, then that would be great. Uh, and just play it over and over again in this sort of monotony. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to feel it. Um, the sound is like a rushing wind. The fire is present like tongues of fire that rests on them. So I want this to feel the space. So give it to us. Keep it going. You hear? And here's what I want you to do. On each of those notes, I want you just to say Me, me. Me, 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 me. You go. Me, 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 me. Keep it going. Louder. This is real creepy, y'all. All right. Oh, gross. Did any of y'all enjoy that? No. No. That's what it felt like before Babel. That's like a narrow language, one word. Let's build a name for ourselves. Now, here's what it sounds like post Babel. Give it more. Make it grosser. That sounded like war. Yeah. It is the notes. He's got the same notes on that fretboard, right? There's, I don't know. How many notes are on a guitar? Do you know? 13. 12. (laughs) But playing a whole bunch of different tones and a bunch of different octaves. It's all the notes that are there. They're just discordant. They're dissonant. That's the sound of what happens after Babel. And that is the world as we find it. This discord and chaos. Now, at Pentecost all of that noise is brought into this kind of harmony and what we discover at Pentecost is a new way to speak with a new language and so I'm gonna ask if you would to play what it sounds like after Pentecost and you can give us whatever beauty you want Present. Thank you, Promin. You are all present on that fretboard. You are all present in the song that God is singing over creation. You all have a role to play, a tone to find, a harmony to sing. Pentecost is the invitation to be the church. The book of Acts is a story about how that disparate group of Jesus followers became a community of cohesion. Not one that narrowed down, but one that opened up. And that opening up and that expansiveness, witness to something in the world, namely witness to the power of the resurrection. We tell the story, but in telling the story, we become the story. It's tempting. It's really tempting in my position, in Pastor Leslie's, Pastor Gretchen's and our board's thinking. Uh, to try to come up with what the strategy is for the church. What's our strategy to reach the world? What's our toolkit? What steps one through seven? We don't actually have a strategy. We are the strategy. The church is God's strategy for the world. It is God's gift to the world. Not isolated individuals holding their, their bit of belief, their corner of it all, but somehow us coming together and in our presence, bearing witness to the power of God. And this is why I love this congregation. Like truly, why I feel like this is not making stuff up, but is in fact possibly present here. We started this by just looking around, by noticing We're glad y'all are here, by the way. I can't wait to meet y'all. Got friends up here I have not yet met. Inviting into our congregation, into this community. We don't have a plan or strategy, folks. God has simply called us to gather together and bear witness to the resurrection among one another. To be a forgiving community. To be a reconciling community. A generous community. A place where we don't all have to say the same words and think the same things. There's a sermon that I've been reading this week by one of uh, my professors, Stanley Hauerwas. And if I can find a way to get you a copy, it is. I I almost just read his sermon for you today. It was so very good. Uh, But I want to read for you just a, a section. Our task is to be what we were made to be at Pentecost. A people so formed by the spirit that our humanity is but a reflection of our confidence in God's sure work. Without such confidence, no doubt the church is constantly tempted to self-righteousness and self-aggrandizement. But we have a sure check against such temptations by the very Savior who has made us what we are. Four, how can we be prideful when the very God we worship is most fully manifest on a cross? There is no way if we are to be faithful to God's gift at Pentecost that the church can avoid calling attention to itself. I me read that again for you. There is no way, if we are to be faithful to God's gift at Pentecost, the church can avoid calling attention to itself. You can't keep this a secret. And you definitely can't keep this as a shame point in your life that you're religious. To be sure, like Israel, the church has a story to tell in which God is the main character. Another one of my professors, uh, Richard Hayes, the father of Christopher Hayes, who teaches at Fuller here, uh, he would always say when we were interpreting a passage, if we didn't know what it meant, he would say, it's about God, stupid. Like, that's just pretty simple. We are not the main characters in the story. We are the storytellers bearing witness to the character, which is God. But the church cannot tell that story without becoming part of the tale. The church as witness to God's work for us in Israel and Jesus of Nazareth means that here the teller and the tale are one. For this is not just another possible story about the way the world is. It is the story of the world as created and redeemed by God. That story, the story of the world, cannot be told rightly unless it includes the story of the church as God's creation to heal our separateness. Your very being here is setting your body and your life in a community that might narrate for you your way back to God. If we are doing what we are called to do, then we will speak reconciliation and we will be reconciled. Your enemies should be present in this space. You should at times be uncomfortable in this space because that gives you the gift of the work of reconciliation. Not to shy from it and to be afraid of conflict, but to believe that something higher and stronger binds you, which is the story of the resurrection that you have now been picked up and brought into. You are the gift God is giving for the separateness found in the world. I had this line written, that you are the story God is telling. And that feels... uh, weighty. Corey, my wife, I was sitting beside her before and she put her hand on me and she said, are you feeling okay? And I said, yeah, I feel okay. Um, not lying, but trying to figure out what energy was inside of me. And people always ask me, do you get nervous when you get ready to preach? And I say, no, I don't get nervous. This is super fun. I love this stuff. Uh, but I felt a little bit of something this morning and I, I figured it's because I'm trying to believe this. That we are the story, that you are the story that God is telling, that I am. And that felt like not a a story I was talking about, but I was becoming. And all of a sudden, that presence of God in our midst and in me, like it kind of sparked a little bit. And yes, so I stand before you with some trepidation, inviting you into that same kind of uncenteredness. That you might become slightly askew or upside down to a world that is truly upside down. So you can bear witness to the power of God in the world. I wrote this line and I thought that is not right. That is just a sad approximation. You are not the story that God is telling. We are the story that God is telling. Together. Part of the challenge, the call and the charge to you throughout these teachings through the book of Acts is to take inside of you this abiding reality that you have been knit back together in the community of faith we call the church. You name this church as your home. This community locally gathered in Pasadena. Some of you at different times have had other communities of faith, and you were knit together to them in what we would call the one Catholic church, the small C. But this is the place you have decided to set your life. The world speaks in Babel, which is the language of violence. Then the church is God's language of redemption. It is a community, when rightly formed, will bear witness to what resurrection looks like in our world. And we desperately need you. We need you to buy in, to believe, to step in faith, to lean into God. Not in fear and not in anxiety. And not in a sense of unworthiness. But in an invitation. To receive. And in that receiving. To trust. To settle in. Link arms. And move forward. Across these teachings. There might be someone in your life. That you need to bring into this place. It might be an enemy. It might be someone who feels deeply disconnected from humanity and from creation, from their own lives, from their own self. You happen to have a congregation present at this corner of Marengo and Union and Arroyo and Holly that is trying to be God's people, to be the language and the voice of God, to be the body of Christ in the world. Every time I stand up to speak, I'm calling you into this deep reality, calling myself into this deep reality. There's nothing left to do but be reconciled. That God has done all of the work. Easter is here. Resurrection is now. It is ours to practice and ours to become. So, friends, are you ready? Would you pray with me? God, by the power of your spirit, knit us together in generosity of presence in courage to stand in kindness and grace for the pains and struggles of this world. You have given us every good gift that we need to bear the fruit of reconciliation, of love and joy and of peace, of kindness, of gratefulness. You have given us the gift of one another. And so for all of those in this congregation who hold one another dear, that we know by name and that we know by face and that we know as guest and stranger one day to be friend, We are grateful and also a little bit scared for honest. We thought that you were going to uh, not call us to quite such a task. Forgiveness is hard. Yet God, you have forgiven us and you've made a way back to you. And we don't have to storm heaven, but you've brought it here. We love you, God, and we want to love this world as you love it. So make us a people ready for the task ahead of us. Thank you for trusting us. We know that we don't get it right all the time, that we split, that we quarrel, that we bicker, that we're suspicious at times of motives. And yet still you give us a chance to bear witness. And so in our own voice, in our own words, we will tell your story of how you are putting the world back together in Christ. And we will not be afraid of the implications of a bigger family and an expansive understanding of our own identity in you. We're not quite sure what this will cause us to give up. So again, make us strong. Receive now these songs and these prayers and these gifts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.